This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Ed, hello. Good to be with you, Jeff. Do you really have nothing better to do than sit in my loft? I kind of, you know, checked out all the options and uh, this I'm afraid this was the best on offer. <laughs> I think we should tell people about how we met though, Jeff. Yes, like so any couple. Th- let's do it. So Ed was on my radio show in the run-up to the 2015 election. People said you even made me sound vaguely human, which I thought was a sort of massive achievement on your part. <laughs> That's what I specialise in, making people sound human. I'm hoping to go the extra step, you see. To, to become fully, fully human. Fully that, human. That's great. Shed your cyborg self. Exactly, yes. exactly. Although so, now we've got a cyborg as Prime Minister. <laughs> have, you, have you seen The Wires? Have you seen Flashing Lights? I mean, you've been bit, up little, close, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think we should talk to people about the environment we're in, though, Jeff. Yeah, so, so um, when, when I was thinking about this, that the world is going to rack and ruin, and surely there is some positivity out there. I thought, I'm going to get in touch with Ed. And uh, I, I went round your house. I went into one of your two kitchens. Yeah, thanks for reminding me. <laughs> and uh, we said, yeah, let's, let's do a podcast where we, we talk to people with ideas. And then I told Ed that I had been given one of these Japanese toilets. Uh, and then I was... I mean, uh, to be honest, that's why I agreed to do the podcast uh, with you. Can, can we do I mean, it, it, was the Jap- it was the Japanese toilet that did it uh, But you me. haven't you haven't yet availed yourself well, of I mean, it. Well, give me time. I've only been here 15 minutes, I think. <laughs> Uh, let me just tell listeners, it is a spectacular toilet. Thank you. Thank uh, you. I mean, it looks like a normal toilet, but then it has these electronic devices sort of next door to the toilet. So tempted by the Japanese toilet, here you mm-hmm. are. And and seriously, do you just get to pick and choose when you go? I've never understood this about MPs. Do you just go to the to- toilet? No. <laughs> <laughs> you pick and choose when you go. Actually, there's no regular going to the toilet time in Parliament. Actually, that is one of the few things there isn't. So it's just, not like school. You don't get just let you know. You don't have to put your hand up and ask the speaker whether you can go to the toilet. Have you ever had that during PMQs, though? Mm, no, I think. Okay. David Cameron, you say, oh, I always do it on a full bladder. Or yes, something. I remember reading oh, that. Oh, I know, but I thought that was just public school bollocks really wasn't it i mean you know. <laughs> so on to why why we're here other than the toilet other than the toilet we've we've covered the toilet haven't we are there good ideas out there ed i mean you you must have there had... must be no there are look I, the thing i feel most of all the reason i'm excited seriously about this is i think there are lots of good ideas out there i think there's a real thirst for good ideas people want to hear good ideas about you know, people know the country's in real difficulty they think things are really unfair they think there must be a better way of running the country than this. And I think this is, uh, hopefully this will become the place where people hear some of those ideas, but hopefully not in too sort of, in a completely nerdy way, you know. Yeah, because I mean, nobody could ever accuse either of us of being uh, no, nerds. Certainly not me. Yeah. Certainly not me. <laughs> um, no, that's where you come in, actually. So what was surprising to me, after the big crash in 2008, so at different points in history, uh, when, when terrible things happened, like new ideas emerged like a phoenix and new ways of organising society. And after 2008, it was like people just thought, I know, we'll carry on as we were. I, I think it must, be, it must have been partly that the crisis was so deep that people were focused on how do we get out of the crisis. But but the lessons of history are, you know, Franklin Roosevelt, who was a US president after the Great Depression in the 1930s, you know, and he did something called the New Deal, which was a big putting back to work program, and, and all kinds of sort of innovations, Britain after the Second World War, is that out of a good crisis came an opportunity to rebuild. And I think in a way, all of us who were involved in, in politics bear a responsibility for not having been imaginative enough to get those, to, to make those ideas happen, but I think there might now be an opportunity. If you if you like, we've come through the immediate crisis of the 
uh, you know, of, of, of the crash itself. We came through it. We now have a different crisis, which is Brexit, continuing austerity. But they're, they're, you know, they're, they're now, I think, is a chance. And we, you know, hopefully the ideas can get on the agenda and we can play a small part in making that happen. We should talk about what's coming up on the podcast. Do you want to talk us through what we have? So we're going to be talking about an idea that a number of people are talking about, which is the universal basic income, which is the idea that we pay everybody a certain amount of money, regardless of their income, for them to live on. Love it. Without demanding, for without demanding anything from them. This sounds this sounds great. And the, I would I, vote for free money for all. Uh, I, exactly. That's why I chose it for the first one. The, the reason why this is actually a really old idea. Um, it started with Tom Paine, you know, who wrote The Rights of Man, you know, famous author, inspirer of the American Revolution. Um, and uh, the idea that each citizen should be entitled to a certain amount of money or wealth as part of being a citizen. And it you know, it's got some pretty surprising people backing it. Mark Zuckerberg, uh, Richard Branson, Elon Musk, the, uh, you know, tech entrepreneur. Okay, this is make. What, what are all these rich hippies up well, to? Well, that then? is a good question. Right. That's, That's what, what I think when what I What are they names? up to? Yeah. Uh, maybe they don't want to have to pay their taxes and they want to sort of let someone else worry about, right. about it. Um, so it was actually tried, believe it or not, by President Richard Nixon, who was a Republican president in the late 1960s and early 1970s. People have become more interested in it in the last few years, partly because they're worried about, are all the jobs going to disappear, or many of the jobs as a result of robots and all that, partly as a reaction to the fact that you know, the benefit system, welfare, it's so complicated. People, people, you know, are worried about getting a job in case they lose their benefits. And the idea of the basic income is you keep the money moving from benefits into work. So in other words, it's an incentive, if you like, to go into work. Right. So something I've often heard uh, said about rich people is one of the great things that they have over the rest of us is that if they try something and it goes wrong, it doesn't matter because they've got a safety net. So this would kind of... It's like a trust fund for all. Yes. They should call it that. I think there may be people... Yeah, it might put some people off. (laughs) So we'll be talking about that yeah. with an American um, chap, Scott Santens, who is himself sort of trying to live the idea, but he's a great expert on it. Then we're going to be asking, uh, we're going to be explaining how you can join in and we'll we'll, hold, we'll give you all the contact details and uh, tell you exactly what we would like. And then we have a very funny comedian, Gronny Maguire, coming in to pitch us some ideas, which are potential reasons to be cheerful, of how she would go about fixing society. She's one of these comedians who's cropped up on Question Time before now. She did very well, I'm told. I don't tend to watch Question Time, but I'm told she did very well. I used to watch it religiously, and then I thought, all this is doing is making my blood pressure go up. That's not good. And normally Nigel Farage is on, apparently. He's on on every week. (laughs) He's on retainer. (laughs) He refuses to leave. He's squatting in there. First, though, um, I thought what might be nice is if we share with you from our lives a little reason that we have to be cheerful every week. So, um, Ed, do you want to start? Yeah. Um, Why am I cheerful this week? Well, I'm cheerful because I'm doing this podcast with you. Mm -hmm. Um, I baked cheesecake for my wife this weekend because it was her birthday. Ah. uh, And that made me cheerful. How did it go? It was nice cheesecake. And my son, my six-year-old son, helped me make it. He did, did the base. Actually, he did a better base than I did. Did he actually. really help, or was he hindering you a little? No, bit? no, he, he did. A, he did well on the base. Okay. Yeah. Well, he um, appealed to the base. 
<laughs> I shouldn't I shouldn't be giving you credit for that. No, though, it's just yeah. like a terrible pun. Yeah, but can I just tell you the other reason I was cheerful yes. this week? So, uh, uh, you know, I'm one of those middle-aged men or sort of maybe late middle-aged who, you know, thinks I should exercise. And so I've started going running more, you know, come back in September, you know, decide to and so I've, you know, gone running, went running every day beginning of this week. Uh, three days in a row, two miles around the park, really good. And as I was sort of glorying in this achievement yesterday on my way home, thinking I'll tell my wife two and a half miles today, suddenly I was on the floor. What? I had fallen over. What? Yeah, I tripped tripped over a paving stone. No. There you go. Well, you know what was the strange thing? is a woman was passing by. This is what you get for sort of being in the public eye sometimes, not that I'm complaining. And she, instead of saying to me, are you okay? Which is what my son said to me when I walked to the door. She said, good job I didn't get that on camera, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Which the, the translation of that is, she wishes she'd got yeah, that Yeah, I know. If you're listening, tell yeah. us who you are. What about you? What's your reasons for, to be cheerful? I've given you two. I feel a little flashy saying this. Ed has insisted that I tell you about this, but um, it's not the sort of thing I normally do. I made an impulse purchase. I'm a big fan of The Muppet Show. always have been since I was a kid. Which character do you empathise with, Jeff? I, 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 Kermit? I, I think I am the Kermit character, yeah. you know. I'm, I think, what does that make you? I think well-meaning. A frog. I lack the star quality I of a fuzzy I think you're being hard on yourself. Well, do you, do you identify with the Muppet character? I don't really know the Muppets well enough to identify with them. Oh, f*** off, Beaker. <laughs> I set you up for that, didn't I? I just set you up for that. We have to get that Wallace, out of the way. Wallace, actually. I think people would have been thinking, why isn't he saying it? They yeah, would have been okay. distracted from the rest of the story. So anyway, I'm, I'm Googling some stuff to do with Kermit the Frog when I stumbled across the news that the Muppets were going to be playing a show with an orchestra. Somewhere in Stoke Newington, was it? It was at... Where the, you live. It, it, it was... Um, it was at the Hollywood Bowl in oh, Los was Angeles. It, yeah. So on a whim, I purchased these tickets. I then have to break the news to my wife that I'm thinking of going to Los Angeles. And leaving her leaving and her your and the, young son yes. on their own. Yeah. Now, I've so got, you can go and sort of commune yeah. with Kermit the Frog. I don't think it'll scar him that much. I don't think so. And also marriage is, you know, it's often about having things in the back pocket that you can pull out and use against the other person. In the bank. And I felt that this was a good My wife has four and a half years of me as leader of the opposition. <laughs> that, is an, that is a limitless supply in the bank. Anyway, sorry. So so I buy these tickets. I, I fortunately managed to get flights on air miles and I've got a friend out there who can stay with. So it ends up not being horrendously expensive, but it's certainly money that I'd rather not. And, and did it, you know, they say sometimes when you sort of meet your heroes, it doesn't live up to your expectations. Does it did it live up to your expectations? Oh, it was wonderful. Beyond. It was, it was beyond. I mean, it was like a, a stage version of the Muppet Show, how it used to be in the 1970s, but with a full orchestra. It was just fantastic. But that's a pretty good reason to be cheerful. I think so. Reasons to be cheerful, a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. So universal basic income then. When was the first time you heard these words, Ed? Can you remember? When was the first time? I think I must have heard it first 15 or 20 years ago. And I think the the sort of whole automation, robots, people being put out of work by machines thing has sort of supercharged that. But, you know, it is part of the sort of policy conversation, if I can put it in that nerdy way. I mean, Hillary Clinton recently published her memoir about the 2016 election. And she said that, 
I think quite a lot of people's surprise that she thought very seriously about advocating for a universal basic income. In the end, she decided against it, but she was really attracted to the idea. Bernie Sanders, her opponent in 2016, uh, uh, says he's very sympathetic to the idea. That's interesting because Bernie Sanders, you can kind of imagine this free money for everyone coming from, but Hillary less so, I guess. Surprising. And I think that shows that it has some power as an idea and it's worth talking about. So on the line, we've got Scott Santens, who's a leading advocate for the universal basic income. He's in New Orleans. And Scott actually gave up his job uh, working at a tech company in order to become a full-time advocate for the universal basic income. And he's living on his, what would he'd like to see as a basic level, uh, as a floor, $1,000 a month. So Scott, can you start by telling us about the idea of the universal basic income? Yeah, so a universal basic income is a form of social security that creates an income floor underneath everyone. And the elements that are important to remember about a basic income, say so it's known as universal basic income or UBI, and that, that that's it's describing exactly what it is. The universal part means that everybody in a region gets it. It's unconditional, as in there's no means tests or work requirements, there's no forms to fill out, you don't have to do anything to get it. It is just yours essentially as a citizen. It's a basic as in it's enough to cover basic needs. It's essentially enough to eliminate poverty. This is about covering people's food and housing, utility, clothing expenses. It's not about buying everyone cars or mansions or you know middle-class lifestyles. This is purely basic. And it's income, as in it's cash. It's not a voucher. It's not, say, free food or free housing. It's cash to use on however, whatever you feel you need the most. And tell us what... If you had to say to our listeners, Scott, what's the the most important reason to introduce this idea? What would you what would you say? I think one of the most transformative ones is actually what scares people the most. So this is that a basic income provides you the power to say no. And so, you know, because you aren't forced to work in order to receive it, you can refuse work. And so that's what people worry about. They worry about, oh my gosh, if we give people money then they'll refuse to work. And by, of course, by acknowledging that, you're saying that everyone is forced to work right now. You have no choice but to work. And because of that, then you get to say you have the problem of accepting poverty wages because people don't have a choice. If they have a choice between $0 and, say, $7 an hour, they're going to go with $7 an hour. But if they have an unconditional $1,000 a month, are they going to accept that $7 an hour as their wage? Or are they going to say, no, I'm not going to work for $7 an hour, but I would work for you. I would do this work for $15 an hour. Right. I, would do this, I would do this work uh, 20 hours a week instead of 40 hours a week. You know, it's about having more control over how you work. If, has this been trialed anywhere? And is there evidence that when people are given this money, actually they are incentivized to go out and do stuff in the way that you're talking about? Yeah, yeah, there's a there's a lot of interesting evidence out there, and that's uh, really what got me so into the idea in the first place, is even learning about experiments that we had done actually decades ago. Like here, I had not known this was really an idea until I happened upon it, and then it's like, oh my goodness, like we actually almost passed a version of basic income in the United States back under Nixon in 1970. That's the Republican like, president, wasn't it, in the 60s and yes, 70s? Yes, yes. And he proposed it. So this was the president proposing it. He proposed it in 1969. So we tested this back then. We tested this in uh, cities across the U.S. We tested it in Seattle and Denver 
and New Jersey and Gary, Indiana and North Carolina. And we so we tested different you know amounts of it. We tested different clawback rates. We tested rural versus metro. And so they found across all of these experiments that there was not this this um, drop in work that people felt there was going to be. Now, it, it, it depended, it had different effects on different groups. So if you looked at students, now students actually used this income and they used it to go back to school. They used it to for their education. So because these students were essentially working jobs because they had to, they needed to, and they, they weren't able to focus on school. So by giving them that, they were able to reduce their hours, but they didn't just sit around doing nothing. They went to school. And so they also saw this uh, effect with, um, with new mothers. They essentially used it as paid maternity leave. So these women who would have otherwise been forced to stay in the labor market after having given birth, they said, oh, well, I've got this income guarantee. I'm going to stay home and raise my kid. And now with primary earners, that was an effect as well, where that was the smallest effect. But even then, it wasn't that people were reducing their hours of work. What they did is they used the income to spend more time between jobs looking for the next job which I would argue is what we want. You don't want someone just taking a job because they have no other choice and they need the income and they're just you know, accepting it because then you're going to get lower wages and you're going to get people in jobs that they are not going to be productive in. People will say, this all sounds like a great place to live, but there's just no way we can afford it either in America or in Britain. How would you respond to that? Yeah, so uh, basic income is it's much more affordable than people think. And this, is, this gets a little bit more complicated. In the U.S., you take the you take the recipients of basic income, say over 300 million people, you multiply it by $12,000 a year, and you'd expect it to be over $3 trillion, but that's not it. Because again, you're looking at this net transfer. A universal basic income is a very unique program, unlike any other program, where people both pay into it and receive from it at the same time. So if you are someone who's earning $0 and paying $0 into it and getting $12,000, then that cost to give you a base kingdom was $12,000. But if you are paying into the system $6,000 and you receive $12,000, then the cost to give you a base income is $6,000. So you, if you pay it are, back in taxes, essentially. Yeah, you're paying taxes on your earned income. And you would expect to see an increase in taxes on earned income in order to pay for the basic income. What's your best so, estimate, Scott, of what your version of this, the, the dream basic income or the, or the realistic slash dream basic income, what's your, ver your guess as to how much it would cost in the U.S.? Sure. So, yeah. So the net transfer in the U.S. is uh, $900 billion, but that's not subtracting out any of the programs that I would subtract out. Once you do that you're looking at about between 300 to 600 billion dollars a year that's the necessary increase in taxes to pay for this there are a bunch of different ways to do it uh, I like the idea in the US of uh, partially doing it with a carbon tax I think carbon tax and dividend is just a great idea for everyone to take up you said that out very clearly I've, I've got one final question for you which is I think you've been living the basic income dream in the last couple of years because you've raised money to pay for yourself to advocate for the basic mm -hmm. income. How so you're a guinea pig. You're a guinea pig. You're, so, yeah. so tell us what's been the impact on you. Yeah, so I've been living with $1,000 a month basic income since January of 2016. And I think the, the biggest uh, change, the biggest effect that I've seen 
is this increase in security. It's like it's an it's an emotional feeling. It's a it's a you know this 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 knowledge that every month on the first of the month that I will receive enough no matter what to pay for my housing and eating costs, you know, however basic that is, that makes it just a huge difference that I, I don't think people really understand because I didn't understand it myself. I didn't know how little security I felt until I actually had it. So Scott, all we have to do now is figure out how to sell something to people that you don't really understand until you're feeling it and experiencing it yourself. That's the, that's the easy part. <laughs> and, yeah, and yeah. pilot. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, Scott? All you know, many parts of the world, or a number of parts of the world, they are now piloting this. I think I'm mm-hmm. right. The Netherlands, Canada, various other places. Yeah, Scotland's going to start, and uh, we've already had experiments in India and Namibia, and uh, I, I, I wouldn't well, ex- Nambia, I as President I- Trump calls it. <laughs> <laughs> Scott, yeah, look, uh, we just forced us to say thank you so much. We really appreciate you coming on and uh, sparing the time with us. Thanks, uh, thanks for having me. Happy to help. So what do you think, then? Are you sold? I'm not completely sold. So when he mentioned that figure in America of $900 billion, I mean, it might as well be a gajillion when numbers are that big. Scary I, I, biscuits, I, I, basically. Yeah, I don't understand. Have you heard what it would cost if they did it over here? I think I'm right in saying that there's a range of estimates. Some people say it can be revenue neutral, so it won't cost anything because you save money on other benefits, you get more money in, in taxes. Others who I think are probably more realistic say it might be in the 10, 20, even 30 billion pounds. At least that's not, you know, of the scale of nine hundred billion dollars, right. which sounds like, you know, completely unaffordable. So, so I think, you know, I think cost is definitely an issue, but I don't think it stops it ever happening. So, what else do we spend thirty billion pounds on for context? Well, it's about I think it's about a quarter of the NHS budget and and all the uh, social security budgets and the benefits uh, and the uh, point budget is, to and some about e- less than half of the education budget. And to some extent, you get this stuff back uh, with the benefits. Exactly. And and I guess as well, if people are leading happier lives, that means healthier lives. And maybe there'd be some cost savings to the NHS too. And look, if you think about our national income, that's you know, nearly £2 trillion. So compared to that, it's relatively small. What's, but I, what bothers you about it? Um, I think what bothers me about it is a bit cost um, and a bit, uh, you know, is it uh, is it the big priority for now? And, and a little just, bit, and, and a little bit, can you sell to people the idea that you get money for nothing? However, having said all that, I think it's really important. The reason I wanted to do it first was that there's some great aspects to this conversation because one, it expands the idea about. Let's discuss what a good life is and how we enable people to have a good life, not just a, a, a sort of the the life that people have at the moment. So, you know, some people will find their jobs not interesting enough. Some people will find they're incredibly insecure in the modern economy. You know, let's expand that conversation. Secondly, I would say about my own constituents, so many of them I meet who are on benefits are worried about going off benefits because they're going to lose the money. Yeah. And and you know this idea that you keep the money with you when you leave benefits and go into work, it makes it worth worth taking the the risk. And and then the last thing is it's a big idea. You know nobody nobody listening to it, they might disagree with it, but it's a big idea to try and you know, change yeah. the way you, our world works. I think so, people will have a problem with the something for nothing thing. But then if everybody's getting it, if you're getting it as well, can you complain about Because pe- people are ob- obsessed with this idea of uh, scroungers they and people are, yeah. lazing. But that's the interesting thing. You see, I-, I think you're absolutely right about the sort of political sellability problem. But 
let's just take this thought experiment. If these pilots, you know, testing it out, shows that it, whether it's in Scotland or Netherlands or wherever, shows that actually it doesn't stop people working and it makes them more likely to take the risk of going into work and that it reduces people, the number of people on benefits, maybe it changes people's minds about it. In other words, maybe the biggest obstacle gets overcome because of the practical experience. It needs a jazzier name, Universal Basic Income. It's not very catchy, is it? What, 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 any suggestions on a postcard? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, send us Jeff a postcard. Jeff Lloyd, care of Japanese toilet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Know, yeah. And all that. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. So hopefully this episode is a little thin on the ground compared to future episodes because we would like to hear from you. We would like to make this as democratic as possible, up to a point. You don't want too much democracy. A little bit of democracy. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Maybe it should be a Jeffocracy. Yes. Yeah. I've always wanted to live in a Jeffocracy. Jeffocracy. Yes. Definitely. People go power crazed though, don't I hope they? Not. I think you might do actually. You must have seen we that. can't give you too much power then. No. Um, reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com is the email address. Look for us on Facebook, facebook.com stroke reasons to be cheerful podcast. That's a mouthful. And we've set up a voicemail. So if you look for cheerful podcast on Skype, you should theoretically be able to leave us answer phone messages. People should tell us what they think about universal basic income. Yes. Uh, what they thought about they heard from Scott Santens, from us today, what they think of the the idea we'd, we'd love to to play play their feedback wouldn't we absolutely and, and and this is the sort of stuff we'll be talking about and reading email in future weeks which would usually go here obviously it can't this week so it, it would be that it would be also if you've heard a great idea maybe you've watched a ted talk or read an article in wired magazine or, or heard somebody with a great idea let us know about it because we're after suggestions for guests for future weeks or maybe somebody's had a sort of idea that they've always thought would be the answer to our problems or a big problem and got, they've never heard it taken seriously now now is your chance i've got a friend uh whose big idea you got is, a friend uh, yeah, it may come as a surprise yeah. <laughs> um he's count me and i've got two actually this is wonderful um his his big idea is zero percent income tax 100 percent inheritance tax oh, what do you think of that interesting to think it through yeah i know it's an intriguing one selling yeah i think so um so so yeah ideas for guests ideas you've had and thoughts on the ideas you've heard in this podcast is what we're after um if you want to contact us in any of those ways and since we don't have stuff from you here i thought i could ask ed some questions to to fill in the gap so who would be your fantasy guest on this podcast you can have Barack any... Obama. You met Obama, though, I right? did. He's pretty cool. Did he have all the charisma? Yeah, he's pretty nice, actually. Wow. Uh, in, in I went to see him at the big White House. You you went and you yeah. were there in the Oval Office? I was, yeah. Did you shoot some? No, it wasn't the Oval Office, actually. It was he, a side room. He didn't want you in the Oval <laughs> Office. <laughs> no, we had to go through a big palaver, which is I was formally um, meeting Susan Rice, who was his national security advisor, 
and then he drops into the meeting because I was leader of the opposition, so he, I, he couldn't be a formal visit to be etc. etc. Et so there's a pecking order of different types of visits. Order. Yeah, and you got a, I wasn't. You got a drop by. Order, yeah. How long did the drop by go for? I think it was of half an hour. Okay, that's that's a good. Like, At least that's drop what by. we said anyway. <laughs> Probably two minutes. No, it was, it was yeah, nearly half an hour. When when you have met world leaders in the past, what would you say the ratio is to uh, of extremely charismatic to extremely cold? Mostly quite nice, actually. I'm trying to think of any. Oh, there was Mitt Romney. I don't know whether you remember. I met yeah. Mitt Romney. He got into quite a lot of trouble. He he called me Mister Leader. Um, and I think this led the British press to think he didn't know, really know my name. Um, I think he was trying to be sort of polite, but he got into all sorts of bother because he came on this trip and he slagged off the London Olympics as it was about to start and et cetera, et cetera. I mean, he was actually, the funny thing was, he was much nicer in person than I expected. How often is that the case that um, a conservative is nicer in real life than you might expect? But most of the time, most people are sort of human beings. I mean, I, 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 I kind of can't, you know... It's rare to have met. It's not that I've met that many world leaders, but it's rare to meet somebody who you think, "Oh God, I really, I really don't like you." If um, if we were to base the ideas uh, to mm. represent the type of letters and complaints that you receive from constituents, what percentage would be about dog fouling? Low, really? Yeah, people tend to write about. Actually, look, it's one of the best things an MP can do to be sort of pious for a moment is, you know, meeting people in constituency surgeries, which I do most weeks, and in Doncaster, and talking to them about, you know, the the the, the things that they are really, you know, but people cut off and say to you, I'm coming to you as the last resort. It can be problems with the health service, it can be problems with housing, it can be all kinds of problems, but generally it isn't sort of superficial things. Do people ever ask you things uh, which are nothing, to, you know, that you've no business knowing about as an MP? They try and get you to settle disputes. Which... Well, one person asked me during the election campaign whether I worship the devil. He was actually voting Labour. Um, <laughs> but I said I wasn't. That's quite something that, that he, he's made his mind up. It's the Illuminati business. It doesn't matter. He's already made his mind up he's going to vote Labour. Yeah. He's just curious whether you worship the devil. He was voting for my neighbour, Caroline Flint, but then he asked me whether he, I worship the devil, and I said no. And and do you Which get... I don't, by the way. Never. Just never. Not the devil. Yeah. <laughs> and and do you get fan letters? Mm. A little bit. <laughs> I mean, you know you you Millie Sometimes fans. people send me nice letters, yeah. Do people send you artwork? Well, after the election, there was a young lady who I think had a tattoo of me on her thigh. And we didn't quite know how to react. But I was <laughs> told that I must not react at all. Because <laughs> You know, this was not a photo opportunity that was going to redound to my benefit. Wow. But post-election, aren't you just out of curiosity? Don't you want to go for a look at that? Well, I was banned. She subsequently had Ed Balls on the other thigh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you left me speechless. <laughs> Uh, so please contribute your ideas for guests, your thoughts on what you've heard, and... Um, ideas that you have that you think maybe this could be the thing that changes everything you can email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com on twitter at cheerfulpodcast on facebook it's facebook.com stroke reasons to be cheerful podcast and leave us an answer phone message and this is your show it is not a jeffocracy we're yes. gonna have a rising up <laughs> of our listener uh, against the jeffocracy <laughs> Email us, reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at Cheerful Podcast or search for our Facebook page, Reasons to be Cheerful Podcast. Mm-hmm.
So every episode, as well as these big ideas, we're going to get somebody in to suggest some smaller ideas that could be reasons to be cheerful. And we're joined by comedian Gronny Maguire. Hello. 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 Has has Ed tried to get you to use the Japanese toilet yet? He's obsessed. I promise you I'm not. Only when I'm around you. (laughs) Really? (laughs) You could do like a portillo instead of trains. Portaloo. There you go. That's good. Well done. Granny, you've brought ideas with you. Yes. Can we can we hear the first one? So I'm quite annoyed by people who brag online, like humble brags on mm, Twitter. Mm. So as a way to counterbalance it, what if every time like you... Piers Morgan, basically. Well, he I wouldn't say that he just... There's no just, humility yeah. there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, humble brag. Oh, I see. Yeah. Right, so right, people right. Are like, oh, you know, just on the way to my podcast. Lol, so tired. Yeah, yeah. Right, that might be us. <laughs> yeah. Anything like that? You do anything like yeah. that? Immediately, what comes up afterwards is the last five things you searched on Google. Oh, that's great. Good. Just to balance things out, you know? So you're like, oh, so blessed. I'm so happy. So lucky. Blah, blah, blah. But what you actually looked up is like... Horse porn. Yes. (laughs) Uh, uh, Yeah, that is is good idea. But I mean, that is definitely extendable, isn't it? It really is. So so, uh, the Google search history as punishment really yeah just to keep it real you're onto something because they're saying that they might stop trolls voting you know uh, mm. twitter trolls mm. but maybe they should do that but you know i think some journalists or other people have sort of i can't remember who it was said oh it's terrible the guardians got adverts for porn or something and it turns out it was because they'd been looking for porn or at least that's the suspicion is that they've just been the looking for porn follow you around. and the yeah. adverts follow you around <laughs> that's a good idea it, Cert, sort of you know you got Sort of search confession. Yeah, yeah. I, I really like that. What? Think of the deterrent. Think of the deterrent effect on trolls. Honestly, I think that is. I think that's infinitely extendable. Yeah, I mean, troll behaviour is the maybe with troll behaviour, which is an extreme version. We could go the last ten things you search for, and then you um, were sentenced to a week search transparency community yes. service. Yes. <laughs> I mean, all of us would sort of, you know. <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to uh, delete my search history immediately in case this idea catches on. Did you have another one? So I think if you're a vegetarian, every year you should get a letter from an animal just to say thanks. I think that is such a good idea. Presumably you should do the number of animals that you haven't eaten. So it's not just one animal. You know, you get it from sort of 40 chickens or, you know, 20 cows or, you know, quite a lot of pigs. Just just saying, thanks, this is what I've been up to. Hang on, hang on, there's a problem with that, But it's like when you give money to charities that you give money to and they kind of show you a picture of an animal. Yes, there are, yeah, you can can buy people goats for Christmas and stuff. Well, it's the sort of equivalent of that. (laughs) You know, the vegetarian... Honestly, the vegetarian society, whatever they're called, if they're listening, I mean, that is a mu- that is like a really sort of good idea, isn't it? So I, I see a problem with your plan, which is you receive a letter from every animal that you don't eat. Every, spe- <laughs> I mean, that is most species. But like a representative, yeah. like let's say usually... I think you're being a bit literalist about <laughs> this, Jeff. <laughs> like, like a year, I would probably eat maybe, if I was, I don't eat meat, but mm-hmm. maybe like one cow, five chickens... And two pigs. So yeah. let's say just like a letter from a pig just to say, you know what? <laughs> Thanks for not eating me. This is what I've been up to. I've had a lovely time. This mm-hmm. is like 
little drawing maybe I did. But, I mean, in all seriousness, you could imagine the Vegetarian Society sending a Christmas card to all its members at Christmas saying, these are the number of animals that you've not eaten this year. And, you know, thanks very much. This is Gertrude. (laughs) Yeah, Gertrude. She's a six-month-old cow. Exactly. (laughs) What if we push little hats on cows when they're out in the field? To, to what end? <laughs> well, just if you're if you're a meat eater and you're on a train and you're going, you look into the field mm. and you see, oh, look, look, look at the cows with little hats on, you're going to feel more comfortable. But you know, one of the things I think that is a sign of my middle age mm. is that I quite like sort of looking at animal pictures on the, you know, cute animal pictures. Do they kind of, you know, get you a bit? I like unlikely animal friendships, you know, like when a bee, a bee is friends you with know, a rhino or something. You know, I just saw one the other day, I think yesterday, which was like a sort of herd of cows and then a dog that looked like the sort of cows, but it was the same colour. And it was all, they were all being friendly to each other. It's so, it was so great what you can project onto those things. <laughs> no, it? it's true. Yeah. It's true. Did you have another idea? The sound I hate more than anything else is fake laughing at Prime Minister's question time. Oh, oh it's awful. Be, oh, 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 yeah, that is awful. So I think there should be a random stop and search if anybody's laughing at a joke, like a spotlight, and they're made to explain why they think it's so funny. That's great. That is good. Yeah. I'll promise it's question time. It's so awful, isn't it? How traumatised were you that by that experience? Very much so. I mean, look, I've ended up doing this podcast, so I must have been very <laughs> traumatised. I mean, honestly. Oh, and there was some Liberal Democrat woman who got up recently and they all started laughing uh, in a ridiculous way because she'd said... Um, my constituents are angry. That's how she began. And so they all started laughing. All the Tory MPs started <sighs> laughing at her. And it's so sexist and it's just, oh, I, I completely agree with you. So, so I've, I've had this conversation with politicians before now um, where I've said, do you not think it's just awful and boisterous and puts people off politics? And the stock answer that you get across the political spectrum is... Yeah, but, you know, it shows that democracy's healthy and if that kind of thing didn't go on, I'd be quite worried. I think they're probably not doing that in Denmark, are they? And things seem to be going just fine over I mean, there. the only good thing about it is holding the Prime Minister to account, but the, but the you know, and if but Donald Trump or George... Well, they, they, all they do is make so... You maybe know, that's true. You, you ask them a question and they make a joke about yeah. your shirt or something. No, I know what you mean. I mean, look, it is awful. It's such a bad advert. And I think MPs don't really realise this. You know, it's such a bad advert for politics but it's so hard i sometimes tried to change it and the problem is your own side feel like you know you've turned up for the match and decided not to play who do you, know, you how if do you, you try and do it in a sort of calmer way and all of that stuff it's just completely hopeless and the ones who are sitting either side of you how do you get to choose who sits where do you get you can sit there this week you've been you've um, had a good week you've been very good you want Yvette somebody Cooper. i mean actually ed balls was quite good to mm. sit next to me because he was just really sort of aggressive with the other side i he's mean always, you need, he's a you need somebody yeah well you need somebody who's can you know sort of punch the other side's lights out. But, I mean, that's part of the problem with it. Yeah. Do you think that... Because I think the problem is, like, in comedy, there's a very narrow idea of what a comedian looks like. You know, it's sort of alpha, usually white male. And do you think the problem with PMQs is, like, it really narrows the idea of what a politician is supposed to look like? I think that's a really good point. Because it's interesting, you know, 45% of our MPs are now women. But, but I think it's so hard to change the culture of that sort of mm. of prime minister's questions because mm. it's such a sort of shouty it's such a shouty thing so i think random but so spotlight spotlight the mp for taunton what exactly was so funny about theresa may yeah. saying oh jackish put your tie on and then they have to explain and it, it is like it is like the school classroom you know it's mm. it's you're happy to laugh along with the crowd mm-hmm. but if you ever get picked on by the speaker 
as a backbench MP, it's incredibly embarrassing, and you sort of want to sort of hide under, you know, hide under the benches. Right. But as a comedian, I mean, that would be the ideal crowd, wouldn't it? They'd just no. laugh at anything you say. Well, yes, I know, but killing it, it. It kind of reminds me of, um, you know, sometimes you do like weekend gigs, and everybody's really drunk, and you kind of say stuff, and you know they'll be like, Whoa, but you hate yourself inside for Is it. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Certain gigs, not, but just certain like drunk Hindus, and I feel like that's that's what PMQs is. A, a drunk like, Hindu or a drunk yeah. stag do. I think it's a pretty good description, actually. But it's in control of the country. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the only difference. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Thanks to Gronya Maguire. You can go and see Gronya in London at the Camden Head on the 11th of October. The show is called What Has the News Ever Done For Me? And thanks too to Scott Santens. We will post some of Scott's articles on the universal basic income on our Facebook page. And that's fairly much everything. Ed has got a sign-off catchphrase that he's very excited to do. But before we do that, we want to kindly request that you rate and review the podcast on iTunes. That would be a tremendous help if you were to do that and to, uh, to tell people about it. But only as long as you've got something yeah, nice only to positive say. Things. Yeah. Otherwise, take it to the grave with you. Exactly. Take your opinion to exactly. the grave. Emma Corsham produced our podcast with research and backup from Lindsay Todd and Alex Feisbrice. Emily Power made our artwork. Ed Seed composed our music. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer and James Deacon made our eye dents. So you ready, Ed? I can start. He's been Ed Miliband. He's been Jeff Lloyd. And these have been... Reasons to be cheerful. <laughs>